and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another incredible episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So my day job is that I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we are facilitators and coaches, and we truly believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I've been truly overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our previous episodes, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really helps us expand our reach for the podcast. Thanks to all of you who have already done so, and let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. So Safi Bacall is going to come across pretty quickly as someone who is bright, sharp, smart, intelligent. And I don't think it's just you or me who will acknowledge that and notice that. He went to Harvard for undergrad and then went on to get a PhD in physics from Stanford. He jokes that he spent his entire 20s in education. He was an academic, a researcher, someone who loves studying science. After he finished up his education, he went on to work for three years uh, as a consultant for McKinsey. He then co-founded a biotechnology company where they developed new drugs for cancer. He actually led their IPO and served as their CEO for many, many years. And in 2008, he was named Ernst & Young New England Biotechnology Entrepreneur of the Year. And in 2011, he worked with President Obama's Council of Science Advisors on the future of national research. 
So once again, it's not just you or me that are going to notice Safi's intelligence right from the get-go. He's been acknowledged, rewarded, recognized, and earned a lot of his degrees based on his knowledge and his intelligence. His book, Loon Shots, which is his first book, has been translated into 21 languages and was selected as a best business book of the year by Amazon, Bloomberg, Financial Times, Forbes, The Washington Post, and more. So once again, he's received recognition for his work, which is certainly impressive. Today's conversation, we dive into his work, but we also get into his mindset and how he thinks about leadership and how he thinks about invention and innovation. And certainly he admires people that have come before him, but Safi himself is often thinking about new ways of innovating, new ways of thinking. And he loves to try to think about not just how he sees the world, but how people around him see the world and how we can make teams better and organizations and groups better instead of just thinking about what's convenient and comfortable for ourselves, which I think is really at the core of his book, Loon Shots. It gets into this idea of artists and soldiers and how you need to serve both of them, regardless of where you tend to lean yourself. So I think Safi's book is a lot about learning empathy, learning how to listen, learning how to read a room and read an organization, and then figure out how you can collaborate and work together to make really big things happen. Today, Safi advises CEOs and leadership teams on strategy and innovation, has delivered keynote presentations at industry conferences, investor events, leadership retreats, medical meetings, and leading academic institutions around the world. So here is Safi Bacall. Safi, thanks for coming on the podcast. There's so many places we can start. And uh, we started this conversation 15 minutes ago, and I felt like we could have just hit record and just kept riffing. But those are usually the sign of what's to come and, and a good conversation. Where I thought we would start is on this central theme uh, in your book around artists and soldiers. And this idea of, you know, where do you, when do you need artists, when do you need soldiers, and we need both and we need to value both, uh, while some people may value one over the other. Um, and I was curious when I was reading about it, how much you think environment dictates whether our inner artist shows up or our inner soldier shows up? How much does the container or the environment dictate whether we feel free enough to be an artist or free enough to to be a soldier? And I'm curious from an environmental standpoint. Got it. Well, first, uh, thanks, Brian. Delighted to be on your show. And we are diving way deep in right away with the first question but i uh i noticed that you uh and you and i've talked about this got a lot of sports um folks you've had on your program and probably a lot of sports guys in your audience and a bunch of interesting athletes i met at your place uh the other day so i want to get to i just wrote down here i want to get to tom brady andre agassi and 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 the lessons i've taken from them later uh, as we go through this, as well as Johnny Ive and Steve Jobs and James Bond and a couple other mutant ninja turtles and a few other things that we can get to. Now, so you asked me about artists and soldiers. That's that is kind of one of the ideas that has uh seemed to have resonated with a lot of 
leadership teams and CEOs that I've spent time with over the last few years, but it's also very relevant for anyone like you or me, or probably some of your audience that are kind of individual entrepreneurs or whether you know, you're a writer or you're an athlete or you're some kind of artist and you're trying to create. So let's say you're a writer, you need to both have this sort of inner artist where you're exploring wild, crazy new ideas, loon shots, loony, crazy ideas that people say are nuts. And you need to be trying a lot of things and failing. And you can think of the artist or the artist type or the, as those guys who are taking a ton of risks, who are trying and failing. And you can think of the soldiers who have in some ways the opposite job. Their job is to reduce risk. Now you need both. The example I often use is with a submarine. Imagine you're on a submarine. So I, I did get to know uh, uh, Admiral who is responsible for transforming the uh, US Navy. And he had me on a submarine a few years ago, which is where I really experienced this firsthand. I was standing you know, 20 feet from a nuclear engine. So imagine you're deep underwater, a couple hundred miles from shore. You don't wanna start hearing a clanking noise from your nuclear engine. At the same time, you don't want to be surprised by a new kind of torpedo. Either way, you're dead. Now, the soldier, the nuclear engineer is the one responsible for on time, on budget, on spec, consistently with quality to customers. If you're a business or if you're an entrepreneur or a writer or solo, getting things done on time, on budget and delivering. You need that. Right. If you're running a business and your sales guy knocks on a customer's door and said, here, sir, here's your toaster. And he's, the customer said, toaster, I ordered a television. And if you don't have the soldiers doing their job, the nuclear engines running without any clanking noises, you're going to be dead. Hey, Safi, can, yeah. can we go in that a little bit? deeper. Yeah. So we just had Admiral Richardson on the podcast. And I don't know if that's who you were spending time with in the Navy, but it's interesting because obviously that you need soldiers in the military. I'm curious when you were spending time there, were there roles and spaces for artists as well? And, and where were you seeing that within the military or did you observe there, was there space for artists um, to explore and, and add value to that organization as well? No, it's a great question. Absolutely. The uh, way to think about it is the artist, in that case, artist, by artist, I just mean the people who you want to take risks and explore the unknown. So it, obviously in art, that's people who are, you know, making wild, interesting new art or music or, but it's anyone who's innovating and creative. And the basic key there is risk-taking. So when you're running a nuclear submarine and you're deep underwater, you do not want a lot of risk in your nuclear engine. Those are the soldiers, the engineers, and so forth. But if you want to avoid being hit by a new kind of torpedo that none of your systems are equipped for, you need a whole bunch of entrepreneurial science and innovators coming up with all sorts of crazy new weapons before your adversary does. And it's the same thing in business. Now, the way to th think about it is as a challenge, both for your personal self, if you scale it down to a, you know an N of one of just you, or if you scale it to an N of two million of the US military, the challenge is in balancing the two. Of, and this is where people run into a lot of 
trouble, both personally and in larger groups. In larger groups like the US military, you have the guys on the top. Sometimes they'll be, you know, going through phases where the Secretary of Defense and the various uh, service chiefs are like, everybody should innovate. And then, you know, people start running around, what does that mean? And they start trying new things and then those things don't work. And there are people like, well, why are things failing? You guys need to get stuff done on time, on budget. Nobody fails around here. It's the military. The confusion is when you assume those two things are the same, when the artists and the innovators are the same. So in the military, you might have, you know, 100,000 people who are kind of active duty soldiers in any, or airmen or sailors in any of the service branches. But let's say you have 5,000 people at, you know, JPL uh, uh, or in, uh, you know, at Hopkins, uh, the Applied Physics Laboratory, APL, creating insane, crazy, wild new weapons or the DARPAs of the world. And you need both. You need the one group to be taking risk and failing and the other group not to be. If personally, just you, if all you did was on time, on budget, the same thing over and over, you're not going to be very successful as a podcast host or an entrepreneur or a writer. But if all you did is write down crazy new ideas, same thing. In order to get some sanity around it personally, but discipline around it and success organizationally, you need to understand how those two things are different. You need to understand who are you assigning the artist job? Who are you assigning the soldier job and not confuse how you're measuring them? If and the is, artist, it, is it is yeah. it more about the who or like, I guess my initial question was around environment, right? Like I think of myself, there are times where I absolutely can be a soldier. I prefer to be in an innovative state and create and and be in that state. But there's definitely times where I've had to tap into being a soldier because the environment is calling for that. How much do you think it is? a product of our environment or a product of the who, um, sort of a nature or I don't care if it's nature or nurture necessarily, but I'm just curious about like the ecosystem and whether it is allowing someone to be an artist or, or enabling or empowering someone to be a soldier. Everyone can be both, but people have a tendency to be one or the other. And if you're not aware of it, you can make some pretty big mistakes. For example, let's take uh, kind of a, a a less known story about an ultra famous icon, Steve Jobs. So uh, Jobs, when he first started Apple, saw himself as sort of the ultimate artist, right? I'm an innovator. I'm a pirate. I'm uh, uh, you know creating these wild, crazy new things. And uh, the Apple, when he first started Apple, the Apple One, Apple Two with uh, Wozniak was a success you know, for about 24 months. And then Commodore and TRS-80 and eventually IBM came in and cleaned their clock with the personal computers. But Jobs persisted with this whole, I'm an artist and, you know, all you guys who are soldiers working on the regular thing are bozos, right? Now they were doing the Apple III and the kind of necessary stuff to stay alive and bringing in 95% of the revenue of the company. And it was a disaster. Right when the, he he did finally launch something kind of new, the Macintosh, it kind of took over from another guy who was leading that project inside Apple. And when the Macintosh launched, it was this famous great publicity campaign, but it was a flop as a product. 
it was uh, too hot, uh, you know, it overheated, it was underpowered, it was too slow and too expensive, and the company was headed for bankruptcy. And what happened was Jobs kind of overweighted this inner artist thing and really demeaned and put down all the soldiers. Uh, the, you know, there was so much friction, you know, Wozniak left the company and the street between their two buildings was called the DMZ, the demilitarized zone, because the two groups hated each other so much. And they took to wearing signs, I'm not Bozo, little plastic signs. Now, uh, Apple nearly went bankrupt. Jobs was asked to leave, which was justifiable. But when he came back, he did what you just mentioned. He had learned uh, through another kind of fascinating and longer story through Pixar. Kind of, He accidentally bought Pixar for a computer company and turned into a movie company. But he watched the film people balance both, balance their inner artist and their inner soldier. And he learned how to do that. And so his first hire, the first guy he promoted when he got back to Apple the second time, wasn't some wild, you know, crazy artist. He got a guy named Tim Cook, who was known as the Attila the Hunt of Inventory at Compaq. And he became this incredible soldier. And then he promoted a guy named Johnny Ive, who was this phenomenal artist. And he managed not by being either an artist or a soldier, by lo but loving both his artist and soldiers equally and managing the touch and the balance and the friction between the two. So whether you're in a large group or whether you're kind of trying to just manage your own time, you want to go between artist time and soldier's time, you can do both. And kind of to your question, does it is it the environment or the person? Johnny Ive certainly has a predisposition to be a great designer of products. Tim Cook certainly has a predisposition to be a great manager of inventory. But they can do both. And it's really what you measure, right? So if Jobs, which is what he was doing, was measuring, hey, show me how many original beautiful designs you can come up with, Johnny. Guess what he produced? Original beautiful designs, most of which sucked, but the few that succeeded were breakthrough. And when he spoke with Tim Cook, he said, tell me about inventory turns. Tell me about timelines. Tell me about reducing costs. And so Tim, that's what Tim Cook did. Now, the iPad, when it came out, was a beautiful product from Johnny Ives' design. But if it wasn't from Tim Cook getting the cost down from $6,000 to $600, there'd be no Apple. So the answer to your question is it really depends on the environment. You can tease out both by the questions you're asking. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. And I think about sports often. So I'll just use this story. Um, so two of the best scorers in the NBA and professional basketball over the last 20 years are Kobe Bryant and Carmelo Anthony. And I once talked to a coach who had the opportunity to coach both of those guys. And they said the difference between the two is that Kobe needed to know why he always, he, he was super curious. And if you couldn't explain to him why you were doing something, then you were going to lose Kobe. And if you listen to Kobe before he, before he died, he thought of basketball as like music and he saw it in a very artistic way. And he, seeked out a lot of people in, in Los Angeles to get their view on performance and, and, and so on and so forth. And very deep and very, very thoughtful human mellow. Uh, you told him what to do. And he basically would say, yes, sir. Okay. Like, just tell me what to do and I'll be there. 
And so I think of them as like Kobe being more of an artist and Melo being a soldier. And yet both of them knew how to put a ball in the hoop. Um, so the destination that they got to was similar, but their paths and the way in which they would approach the game was different. And we could talk about, well, did Kobe fulfill his potential more than Carmelo? I mean, we're talking about, you know, percentages here that are small because they're two Hall of Fame elite athletes. Um, but that made me think about, uh, our conversation before we fired up and started recording and Andre Agassi and Pete Sampras and like from the outside and not studying them too deeply, you know, Agassi always seemed like an artist. Um, whereas Sampras, at least from a perception standpoint, maybe more of a soldier. Um, and so I'm thinking about executors more than leaders. And is there a distinction to be made between the person that's trying to execute, whether it's a salesperson or an engineer that's writing code and giving them space as a leader to figure out, hey, is this person more of an artist or more of a soldier? And that might dictate how I manage or how I work with them. Any thoughts on that? Well, I think if you're in the managing or leadership position, the number one thing you have to remember is that you're always signaling. Everybody's watching your face constantly. And I was a CEO of a public company. I was CEO for maybe 14 years or so. And you just get used to that. The people are listening for every word, every pause. And if you favor one side over the other, you're going to sink the ship. If you're in a submarine and you just love the engineers and you don't care about the scientists who are looking for signals and crazy torpedoes, you'll be taken out and you'll be dead by a torpedo. Same in business. If you keep executing brilliantly without flaws, uh, great, delivering the same product over and over to your customer, like let's say Blockbuster did, or you know, uh, uh, you know, a number of other companies that we could talk about. Um, did Circuit City actually was a really fascinating example. Just do the same thing over and over. Eventually, a competitor will take you out that comes up with some wild new ideas. The case of Circuit City was Best Buy came up with some wild new ideas. And then Circuit City, which was the most successful company uh, on NASDAQ of any Fortune 500 company in terms of stock returns for any 15-year period for decades. Hey, Safi, uh, for you, did you, as a CEO, year. as a CEO, did you, when did you learn that lesson? So 14 years, uh, if you were predisposed to one or the other, did you learn that in a reflective manner or did you know you know, in 2006, like, oh, this is real. I'm favoring this side and that that side, or I'm leaning towards one side. Like, how did you learn that lesson uh, to sit here today and talk about it? Um, you know, I ended up working with President Obama's uh, Council of Science Advisors. And I really picked up on that lesson from that experience when our mission was write the next generation of the Vannevar Bush report. So I didn't know what the Vannevar Bush report is. I'm not sure. Well, you've read my book, so you probably know. But most people, I think, did not know at the time or, or wouldn't have known unless you're in uh, science policy or you're an engineer. And Vannevar Bush was an example of doing both, of loving your artists and soldiers equally. And when he did it, that was really, in many ways what turned the course of World War II and won it for the Allies in a story that's not very well appreciated. But I guess since you read chapter one of my book, you actually know the story. But 
I learned about it really from understanding his story that he, Vannevar Bush was a brilliant innovator and uh, came up with all sorts of wonderful, and he was an engineer at MIT. Uh, he invented the first analog computer, invented kind of the first, what you could call the precursor to the internet, uh, all sorts of, he loved to invent. His predisposition was that his favorite thing was inventing. But he was also an incredibly good organizer and soldier um, and entrepreneur. He started a little company called Raytheon. He turned MIT from sort of an average university into the best technology university in the country and now the world. And when he came, he quit his job at MIT in 1939 because he started seeing that Nazi German scientists were far ahead of the US military. In technologies that would make a difference of the war. You had the U-boat, sorry to digress in World War II and stop me if you don't want, but we were on the verge of losing the war. And that's why he quit his job and moved to Washington. He understood and he told, he talked his way into a 10 minute meeting with Franklin Roosevelt, the president, and said, we're going to, there's a war coming and we're going to lose it. And here's why that German science is too far advanced and the military is full of these soldiers who will never catch up in time. And he said, you know, you have the U-boats that are look ready to sink uh, all our ships and cut off the Atlantic, which they did in the first four years of the war. You have the German aircraft, the planes that outclass anything that the allies had, which they did. They looked ready to bomb Western Europe into submission, which they did in the next few, you know, in a few weeks in 1940. And then finally, these two German scientists invented something called nuclear fission, which put Hitler within reach of the most dangerous weapon ever created by man. And so what happened? Well, fast forward, he told the FDR, we're going to lose this war and here's what I need you to do. I need you to create a new group in the federal government that reports only to me and I will report only to you and I'll mobilize the nation's scientists for war. FDR looked him up and down and said, okay, and he... Bush turned around and got to work. And over the next four years, that's exactly what happened. People don't realize, but we came within uh, months of losing that war because the one surviving nation in Western Europe was England. And England was an island that had no oil. And the German U-boats were sinking ships faster than the Allies could build them every month. And England, by the spring of 1943, got down to three months of oil. It was literally running on fumes. And what happened, Vannevar Bush kind of understood this principle where, which few people understood at the time, that you got to respect both your creative artists, scientist types, your innovators, and your soldiers. And you've got to manage them differently, ask them different questions, track different metrics, and mediate the inevitable friction and tension between the two. So he loved the generals. He worked with the generals very closely and because he respected them, they listened to him. And same thing with the scientists. And so I, what I learned from that story and from Bush and I applied to my own life is that you can't show favoritism to either side, A or B, both in your professional life and for yourself. You can't say, oh, all I want to do is innovate and do new ideas. Oh, all I want to do is be super disciplined and crank things out on time, on budget. You have to personally have to create and separate artist time and 
Ask yourself, am I really taking a risk? Am I really experimenting with something new here or am I doing some more of the same? Am I really stretching myself? Because for the artists, you want to be failing. When you're in artist mode, if you're not failing, if you're not trying and things don't work, you're not pushing yourself enough. It's interesting today, I legitimately, I, I scheduled a call with four entrepreneurs that I work with and I thought, oh, it'd be great to get the four of you together to learn about you know, the state of the market, their fundraising, all these different components that I thought they had in common. And sure enough, uh, you know, last week, one of them said, I, I can't make it last night. Another one said, and then I got to, there was two left and I sort of texted them like, do you guys want to keep the call or should we cancel it? And uh, we canceled it. I said to them in true fashion, I thought this was a good idea, but I guess I failed. So I guess I'm showing the entrepreneurial uh, desire to experiment and this just didn't work today, but maybe it'll work again in the future. I want to just click on this idea of science and art for a second, because in in your analogy of artists and soldiers, the artists and science are kind of on the same team, so to speak. They're in the same place of innovation. But I come from a psychology background and I know that, you know, some would call it a soft science versus a hard science. And we have medical doctors and we have people with masters and we have PsyDs and you have a PhD and you come from parents that were astrophysicists. And so as you see the world and as you're now a writer and an author, I'm curious how you think about the value of science and the value of, we'll call it art, but I don't mean art as in drawing. I mean more theoretical or philosophical um, in nature and how you think about that from an individual standpoint and just life uh, or as a business standpoint. Um, obviously, we just went through a huge pandemic where there was a war on science and there's we sit in an interesting time with vaccines and how people think about it. But how do you think about uh, art and science for yourself and, and how you see the world? I think they're enormously connected. They're connected by purpose. The purpose of art is the pursuit of beauty, purpose of science is pursuit of truth. And they're very close. There's beauty and truth, and there's truth in beauty. Um, and I see that's very different than, let's say, the pursuit of money. Um, and so I think artists and scientists are two sides of the same coin. They're part of the same idea that you're trying to pursue a higher goal, a higher purpose. And in some, there are some obvious differences. If you're doing pure mathematics, you can prove or disprove the validity of a theorem. You can never prove or disprove the attractiveness of a piece of art, more or less. Um, but setting that aside, both have a higher purpose. Both are, you know, come from people internally and looking to express themselves or looking to seek some higher goal. So I find I connect enormously well with artists and uh, I spend a lot of time with artists who enjoy scientists and scientists who enjoy art for exactly those reasons. And I think if I were to double click on that, perhaps curiosity is underneath both of the journeys of that. Um, and I know 
in doing research for this conversation, it seemed like curiosity was something that was embedded in you and developed in you from a young age. How do you think about developing curiosity and any thoughts on, on the best way to um, develop a mindset that is curious to learn more and to grow, whether you're an artist, a science, a soldier, uh, there is a time for Carmelo Anthony to ask why instead of just saying yes. And um, there is also a time, of course, for Kobe to say yes, sir, and not why. But I'm, I'm more curious about how do you cultivate curiosity in people? And do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, just keep asking why. It's a, it's a, it's a really simple rule, but you'll find it sort of surprisingly effective. And I, I often think back to this story by a famous physicist who won the Nobel Prize, Isidore Ravi, and he was at, interviewed one time and asked, you know, what's the secret to winning a Nobel Prize? And he said, I, I don't know if I can tell you any secret. Uh, and the, the listener was like, well, is there something in how you grew up? And he said, well, there was something that was really different. He said, all the other moms on the block, when their kids came back from school, the parents would ask them, you know, what did you learn today? And my mom always asked me, did you ask any good questions today? So I try to do that with my kids. I don't focus on what did you learn, but I focus on what did you ask? And so what you want to cultivate in yourself and if you're raising kids and your kids is asking good questions. So when your kids come up with really good questions, that's what you celebrate. Not so much regurgitating stuff, but you celebrate the asking of good questions. All right. So we're parents and as parents, you know, kids are pretty innately curious. I, I think humans are are born with curiosity and it often gets taken away from us, whether it's through school or adults or uh, other, other children. Um, but I love that that framework of asking our kids to continue to ask questions and continue to go toward learning. Uh, it's just a, it's a cool framework that I hadn't necessarily thought about for my own children, but even beyond children, I think for myself, like I'm no different. Like I need to be asking myself, Hey, what was I most curious about for you as you, as you sit here today, uh, what are you most curious about? What are you asking questions about? Um, you know, it's 2023 and uh, what, what is catching your attention and, and that you're, you're asking questions about? <laughs> well, there was a question from my neighbor just uh, who came over for drinks uh, a few days ago and it really raised some questions with me. So now I'm writing an article or an op-ed about it. And he said, Safi, why aren't you more, you know, you're a physicist, you're an author, you, you, you're known for championing loon shots and seemingly crazy ideas that change society. Why are you not more excited about this, you know, breakthrough in nuclear fusion? And uh, I, I wasn't excited about that, you know, all the new, recent news about this quote unquote breakthrough in nuclear fusion. But I actually keep asking, I just kept asking why. Why is it actually that I'm not so excited? Like, why? I know there's something going on in my brain that's kind of made various assumptions and has kind of dismissed it, but I haven't really articulated it. So, in 
trying to articulate it to this guy. And then I went back and I got curious because, it, and it really reveals something very interesting about innovation and waves of innovation revolutions in society. And then the future of nuclear fusion. Uh, I don't want to get on a long tangent or digression about that because there are many other things we could talk about. But uh, you know, the short answer is, uh, <laughs> you know, there's an invention period in any new technological revolution in society. If you go back to, um, you know, steam power in the 1810s, electricity in the 19 in the 1840s, electricity in the 1910s, the computer revolution in, in the 1950s and 60s, the biotech revolution. There are these sort of three phases of. In, you know, financial capital comes in and there's all this invention stuff. Often there's a bubble followed by a crash. Then kind of reality sets in where there are these uh, engineering challenges. Nothing actually really interesting, kind of mundane, kind of boring stuff. But people, there's a lot of disappointment. But that's when production capital, you have the shift from invention to production, what you... Innovation, the difference, you know, invention is like a neat story. I tell a nice science story. Innovation is something that adds value to consumers. So that second phase when real ex expert capital and, you know, strategic partners come in behind the scenes and all the bubble is gone and there's the crash is when all the ecosystem and the tools and the kinks get sorted out. And then finally, you get a golden age. Like biotech, there was this nice speculative bubble in the 80s when you had the genetic engineering and we're going to cure cancer. Then reality said, and it's really hard to make this stuff in the lab with quality at scale. And then there was a big crash. Uh, but behind the scenes, all this capital came in to create the tools to make engineering quality systems and so forth, which sounds kind of boring, but that's what it took. And now you have this golden age of drugs that make a huge difference in cancer and heart disease and genetic disorders. Same thing happened with the internet. You know, you had the speculative bubble and you had to sort out all these kind of nitty gritty things about business model. And now you have the Amazons and the Googles and the cloud services of the world that are trillion dollar businesses. And I think that's what's happening in nuclear fusion. I think the next revolution in society will be that. Uh, it's the, it's gr the green energy news you actually really do want to pay attention to if you normally just sort of tune out on that stuff. Why? Because wind and solar can fund a relatively small fraction of total planetary human consumption of energy. You know, a few percent is the essentially the maximum you can get. But fusion can pay for, can supply orders of magnitude more than all the energy we consume today or any time in the next thousand years. So it's a completely different magnitude of problem. And what's happened, people are focusing on the wrong breakthrough. There was this almost irrelevant little material science thing that happened a few months ago where some pellet, uh, which is never gonna be commercial, you know, is producing a little bit less energy than um, you put into it, the system with the laser. And then you sort of polish the pellet a little bit. Now it produces a little bit more. It's not a real, it's neither an invention 
There was no real new science, nor an innovation, because it doesn't get you anywhere. It's a sort of a dead end path. What really has happened behind the scenes that's super interesting is that it, investors have come in mass into private company fusion, you know, private company fusion companies and fusion technologies, specifically the kind of oldest, most obvious, at this point kind of boring fusion technology, which is basically just a big donut where the fusion plasma circulates around the donut called a tokamak, which the invention was in the 50s and 60s. But you had this long, long, kind of boring, disappointing period of purely engineering failure. You just couldn't quite get it stable enough. And what happened was there was this accidental discovery of uh, a material, what I worked on as a grad student, a superconducting material, which allows you to create much stronger magnetic fields. It's just an engineer. It, actually, there wasn't a scientific invention because nobody expected it. It just accidentally showed up in the lab, won the Nobel Prize, or earned the discoveries a Nobel Prize. But what it means is that you've solved an engineering challenge. Just like in biotech, you solve the quality control challenge of making a drug in the lab or in the internet, you know, Amazon and some other companies eventually solve the business model challenge of kind of running a low margin business online. Um, and these challenges take a long time, but it's just kind of a boring engineering challenge. Once they got this material, they could make a much stronger donut. Nothing new. Really, there wasn't any new invention. There wasn't any new wild new breakthrough. It's just better engineering. So, do you, Safi, do you yeah. think? Do you think breakthroughs? You said something earlier that caught my attention when we talk about artists and, and scientists, and that artists and scientists are kind of of the same boat. They're both seeking to. I, I don't. I'm paraphrasing what you said, but they're they're seeking to make a difference. Um, and whereas business is often has a different motivating factor. Do you think like breakthroughs are, are driven by more of one of those sides or are breakthroughs, do they tend to be people that get excited about making an impact or a difference or are they more motivated by the potential outcome that they can get for themselves? Do you find that one is, is more likely to lead to a breakthrough? Absolutely, without any doubt, you need both. If you just have one, you'll never have the other. And people get confused about this all the time. The guy with the initial idea is getting the ball from his goal line to his own five-yard line. Okay, There are a lot of people that said, you know what I'd like to do is make a movie uh, about robots from the future. That's a nice idea. But it was only James Cameron who combined that idea with all the execution and special effects skill that you need and built the team to do both. So having the initial idea and the creative idea and taking some chances gets you from zero to five. The other 95 yards down the field is the soldiers and the artists working together to overcome the sort of inevitable stumbles and the challenges. And so... 
the the true breakthroughs, like Apple was a failure as a company for many, many, many years. Uh, and the real secret behind Jobs' success is he sort of described on his deathbed, and I kind of talked about a little bit that's left out of a lot of popular histories, is that he managed by encouraging and bringing together both by John, having the Johnny Ives and the Tim Cooks working side by side. And whenever the inevitable friction would happen, because artists generally don't like soldiers and vice versa. But how about the goal line to the five yard line? Do you find that the motivation for uh, money, let's just use money versus impact, is is there any correlation there or is it diverse in your research as far as um, why people get started are they you know are, and just take us like beyond the goal line and anything that that you've observed or, or researched uh no that's a great question it's all over the map and there's no as far as i've seen there's no correlation and i i have a uh one of the most successful leaders in biotech that i know is just a great drug developer and discoverer has said that if she said if her she ran the research for genentech and she said if her mom had breast cancer, she wants the scientists working on new drugs to be motivated by whatever motivates them. It doesn't matter. Winning a Nobel Prize, fine. Making a million dollars, fine. Getting credit and recognition in front of your peers, fine. It doesn't matter. And it can be all of the above, none of the above, the search for truth, the search for beauty. Um, you know What separates the real innovators is a couple other things is how they go about it. Do they keep asking why? Do they listen to the suck with curiosity? That's another thing, LSC, that a lot of people can kind of come back to me about with, with Lushan. When something doesn't work, do they just dismiss it? Or, or the person that's rejecting their idea or their proposal, do they tell them that they're morons and go you know, to their spouse or mom and say, I'm on the right track or not? Yes, you are, honey. No, they listen and they probe. Why is it that you're not really excited about my idea? What's not resonating here? They have uh, courage, curiosity, and commitment. Uh, those are the three C's that you know I've seen consistently across people who are really good at innovating. They're just keep asking why when other people give up. They keep listening to the suck with curiosity. They don't accept just negative stuff or face value. They keep trying to understand, peel back the layers. And how and, about you? Are you, what are you motivated by? You know, that's funny. I was having this discussion with a, an old friend and a mentor of mine that I hadn't seen a, in a long while, a few, few weeks ago. Um, and uh, he told me about uh a book from his generation is sort of a generation older I'm trying to remember the name the Lo uh, the lonely crowd by Reisman the difference between inner versus outer directed and there i'm inner directed i do things because i find them beautiful because i find writing in a way that's appealing to an audience that that creates a rhythm and a beauty and a structure that's exciting and attractive and interesting and that works and that resonates. I just find that satisfying and beautiful. I find connecting ideas from previously disconnected fields to, to 
reveal something new and see the world in a new way. I find that beautiful. And weirdly to almost to a flaw, as some people have pointed out to me, it doesn't matter to me that much whether other people enjoy it or not. Whereas uh, my old friend pointed out to me that there are some people in the world, I won't mention like the Elon Musks of the world, uh, who do things seemingly for approval. Like they really care about what other people think and they're always putting out their thoughts or this or that. And uh, that's not me. I find that very difficult to do and just not very interesting either. When someone so tells you when, when someone tells you they, they loved your book, how does that feel for you? Uh, it's not, you know, it's nice. I'm glad I kind of feel lucky that I've done something that, uh, uh, resonates for that person that, um, I was talking to, um, another author friend just yesterday night or two nights ago, we had this little fascinating three-way call, three, three of us authors about beauty, about having these beautiful sessions that I do with this Stanford professor friend of mine where we started during the pandemic every twice a month, we do this one hour call and what did you make or curate in the last week that was beautiful? She's a social science professor at the business school. And thinking about that as a, a interesting prompt or intervention for business people, not just artists. How do you create and experience beautiful moments for yourself and for the people around you? And just having those conversations has been very uh, interesting. And so we got another friend on the phone, Susan Kane, who wrote um, Quiet and uh, Bittersweet. Uh, it's a good friend of my friend, Jennifer Ocker and Sue David. Um, and so Sue Kane was saying she feels, I was asking her how quiet about the same sort of question because quiet really resonated with a ton of introverts. And uh, I asked her how she feels when we were talking about the same subject. And she says she felt there's this amazing feeling as a reader. If you, I don't know if you've felt this, Brian, or when you felt this recently, that's an interesting question, that you pick up a book and you experience the author and you're like, I have been either always felt that or thought that or something like that. And this author has just put it down in words and articulated it and made it so much clearer to me. And you feel a connection to that author and you feel grateful to that author that they did that for you. I don't know if you felt that at some point. Oh yeah. And the, the person who introduced us, David Epstein, yeah. uh, when I read range, I had someone else be like, Brian, this is your book. And I kind of agreed with them, but there's another piece that often happens when I, think that way, which is also jealousy or bitterness or envy. It's like, well, why didn't I write that? Um, you know, if I had a lot of these same thoughts or beliefs, like, you know, why didn't I do that? Do you ever have that come out uh, in your mind? Uh, I'm not sure I've thought about it that way. I think, I think it more use it as a prompt for like, what else can I do that can provide that kind of beauty or ideas or clarification or resonance? So, you know, I think in, in Sue Kane's example, she, she said to us on the, on our calls, she said like, that's what she feels is just grateful that and lucky that she's been able to 
create that feeling inside of a lot of a people. Um, so, you know, I, what I do feel is like when I meet with CEOs or leadership teams, when people have like picked up the book and said, this is, you know, changed, spoke into like years of how I've thought about the company or th things that I've really struggled with in managing my business. It's right here on the page and they have like everything highlighted and stuff. I feel um, grateful that something I've done could help people or elevate them or be useful to them. And I'm sure Dave, Dave Epstein's of course our mutual friend, and I'm sure Dave feels the same way with range. I know none of us expected it. I know Dave was just telling me the other day, like he had no idea what he was going to write when he started both of his books, uh, the sports gene and this one and his new one that he's working on. I had no idea what I, you know, very little idea what I was going to be writing about when I started Loon Shots or a very different idea and just ended up there because I was following what was, you know, most curious and most interesting and most fun for me. And I thought, you know, well, maybe my mother and my wife will read this. And uh, I was right about one of them. <laughs> my mother, my mother read it. My wife is still, no, I'm joking. She, she eventually, she no, listened. I think, I think I'm in this, in the same boat. Uh, but you mentioned ideas and I've always been someone who doesn't struggle with coming up with ideas. I, I work with a lot of people who, who struggle with that. They, um, you know, they're not, you mentioned like creating things. Like I get a lot of energy from just creating stuff and I, I can give you a restaurant idea. I can give you a website idea. I can give you like a tangible product idea. I can give you a nonprofit idea. I mean, like I've got them. And a couple of years ago, not a couple, like a decade ago, I started writing my ideas down. And I, my best idea was to sell all of those ideas as a uh, <laughs> Brian's idea book. Um, and so I'm curious for you though, do you have a process with which you um, capture your ideas, filter your ideas, play with them? Uh, what does it look like for you as you're uh, coming up with new ideas and 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 how do you decipher what to pursue and, and what not to? Um, yeah, I mean, I try to capture everything in Evernote and make all my notes in Evernote and different folders and so forth. And then when it gets interesting, I start to try to flesh it out, uh, you know, and I talked about this a few times, but in early days, um, if it's, if it's, you know, either a business idea or, uh, just way of being in the world, way of interacting with family or friends, it's just about running experiments. So one thing that gets you in the habit is just commit to running an experiment a day. And What's interesting about the psychology or subtle psychology of that, that is subconscious is just using the word experiment gives you permission to fail. If you have an inner critic, it bypasses it because it's an experiment. By definition, experiments often fail. So what's important in experimenting is velocity. Just do one a day. How you get to work, how you start your morning, what you do around lunchtime how you interact with your spouse, how you interact with your kids. Just run an experiment each day. You don't need to worry too much about process or deciding if it worked or didn't work because you'll know. You'll have a sense. If your spouse is suddenly lighting up like, oh my God, honey, that's fantastic. That was probably a good experiment. Um, if you feel happier and more energetic during the day, you tried something new in the morning, that was probably a good experiment. So one thing is just 
focus on velocity of experimenting. Um, if it's writing, uh, the kind of what I've talked about before is my mnemonic is write FBR early on, fast, bad, and wrong. And the reason that's important is because, again, we like how he uses an R for wrong, by the exactly. way. Exactly. That's, <laughs> that's the point. Because if you have any tendency toward perfectionism, what will happen is you'll start writing and then you'll be like, well, that sentence isn't great. Let me use a different word. And that kind of, or let me go check that fact. I said this happened in 1972. Was it 1974 or 1960? You're done. Your car never gets up to the 100 miles an hour you need to create interesting ideas. You're stuck at, you go up to zero, one, two, five, and then you're back down to zero and parked while you check some fact. You have to close your eyes, accept that you're going to be writing wrong facts. I have now in Word like a little, uh, you know, a shortcut that I press that will highlight it, which means I can go back later. But you write a bunch of wrong facts, that's fine. But maybe wrong ideas, that's fine. Maybe it's badly phrased. Just accept that you're writing FBR. And the goal is velocity. You want to get up to 100 miles an hour because that's where the real magic happens at high velocity and creativity. Then you go back. That's your artist's time. Then you go back into soldier mode. And this is the trick is being mindful about which mode you're in when and not letting it happen to you, but being in charge of it, owning it. Then you go back and edit it. So that's the secret. But part of it is there's something implicit in your question, Brian, which connects me to the Andre Agassi story that I was just thinking of when we started chatting, just because you do a lot of sports stuff. And it meant a lot to me because, you know, growing up in tennis in the junior playing in the juniors and Pete and Andre were the sort of two competing champions at the time. Uh, when I was growing up and, uh, you know, Pete, for those who follow tennis, Pete was the dominant player and Andre always struggled to be a sort of number two shadow, but then they both wrote biographies and Pete wrote a biography kind of like his tennis style, just like a machine. Uh, it was good, but it wasn't very emotional or inspiring, kind of like his game, Right. And then Andre wrote one of the absolute best sports biographies I've ever read. Maybe one of the best biographies. It was a love story, a fairy tale, a hero's journey, all of the above and beautifully written uh, by his, I forgot the name of his ghostwriter or co-author or whoever it was. And it was dark. And dark. And just what an amazing story with Brooke Shields, who it was a little personal. Like I knew Brooke Shields at Princeton. She used to like her roommate used to babysit it's a long story but uh it was it was awesome and then the finding steffi graf and it really was a love story as much as it was a sports story do you uh, still play tennis no not as much. i took up a different sport and um uh i went through a couple different sports i did tennis i started in the juniors in tennis then i went through a few years where i was just completely into martial arts then we, I went to Stanford and got completely into Ultimate Frisbee and played on their team, which was, people laugh, but it's an awesome sport. It's like soccer plus, for people who don't know, it's like, it's got all the athleticism of soccer and the hand-eye stuff of basketball. It's an, I love that sport. Uh, and then later, 
uh, got really into triathlon. So I started a triathlon team at our company and had a bunch of years where I enjoyed that. And uh, now I've sort of scaled down. Biking is a lot harder in cities. So I just do swimming and running. But the Andre Agassi thing was this. Implicit in your question are a couple of questions today is I am one way or I am the other way. Like I, Brian, can have a lot of ideas, but I don't know about follow through with me. Maybe I'm not as good as follow through. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but people are often like that. I'm good at X and I'm bad at Y. So the question to ask yourself is, is that really true? Do you have some genetic disorder that tells you you cannot do X? Or is this a series of habits? And I remember, you know, I was sometimes stuck on some of these kind of things as well. It may be like too many ideas and not following through on them. And I remember this passage in um, Andre Agassi's book, Open. And this was very powerful for me. He's 36 years old. I think he's playing in the semis, I forget where. And he's in this enormous back pain. And it's kind of a late afternoon match. And he describes his ritual before the match of going into a shower. He says, and I actually have it up here. So I'll, if you don't mind, I'll just read a few sentences. I step into the shower again, but this shower is different from the morning shower. The afternoon shower is always longer. 22 minutes, give or take. And it's not for waking up or getting clean. The afternoon shower is for encouragement, for coaching. Tennis is a sport in which you talk to yourself. No athletes talk to themselves like tennis players. Pitchers, golfers, goalkeepers mutter to themselves, of course, but tennis players talk to themselves and answer. In the heat of a match, tennis players can look like crazy people in a public square ranting and you know, swearing. Of all the games men and women play, tennis is the closest to solitary confinement, which leads to this self-talk. And for me, that self-talk starts here in the afternoon shower. And this is when I begin to say things to myself, crazy things over and over until I believe them. For instance, that a quasi cripple, because you had this back plane, you could barely walk sometimes, can compete at the US Open, that a 36-year-old man can beat an opponent just entering his prime. And here's where Agassi says a sentence that really stuck with me. I've won 869 matches in my career, fifth on the all-time list, and many were won during that afternoon shower. With the water roaring in my ears, I recall particular wins, not the wins the fans would remember, but the wins that still keep me awake at night. You know, Squillari in Paris, Blake in New York, Pete in Australia, and he goes on and on. But that's the key. If and when you're stuck, it's to develop a personal cookie jar. So you, Brian, may have had a lot of ideas. And maybe you're disappointed that, you know, you haven't converted some of them, but that's not the key thing. When did you win? When did you do something that said, damn, this is great, Brian. I really won this one. You put that in your cookie jar. And your cookie jar is where you reach into when you're struggling. You write down, these are the things 
that were my wins. Just like Andre Agassi is doing in his shower before he gets out to take his like crippled back pain ridden body out onto the court and kick the ass of some guy half his age. And you go over and over those wins. That's your self-talk. That's what comes from sports. And you can do that in business. You can do that in personal life. So when I'm stuck in the middle of writing loon shots, chapter six, like where the hell am I going to go with this crazy story of, you know, World War II and the rise and fall of Pan Am and Isaac Newton and Steve Jobs and why the world speaks English and how they're all connected by this one idea. And I'm stuck. I go back and say, well, I was really stuck in the first chapter. And look what I did. It's pretty amazing now. I was really stuck in the second chapter. I had no idea where would I go with, you know, the 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 story of Akira Endo and the discovery of the statins and the loon shots and heart attacks. I had no idea where that story would go. And it ended up fine. I thought the story of, you know, Pan Am and one trip and American Airlines and the rise and fall of this great airline was a cool story, but I had no idea what to tell about that story or how that would be good. And now people love that story. They think it came out fully baked. Of course not. It was a piece of crap in the beginning. I had no idea where it would go, but I did. So when I'm stuck now, that's my shower. That's my Andre Agassi shower scene. I go back and think about the wind. So when you're saying, well, I don't know about this worked or that work, a few times it worked. You have a super successful podcast. Uh, you've had all sorts of amazing people on this. I don't, you know, I don't know you well enough to know what else you've done, but uh, that's a big hit. You know how many people have tried podcasts and failed? You know, a ton. Um, so that's how you know I've connected to Andre Agassi. Not so much just you know his victories in tennis or his style, but I think about that shower and this you know painful. Uh, a guy who can barely get out of bed talking himself into going on the court and winning the semifinals of the U.S. Open. I think that's a beautiful place for us to wrap. And we can discuss my wins and losses uh, another time. And there have been plenty of both that I can count. Um, but this has been a lot of fun. And I often say this when I have a great conversation. I often say I have more questions and answers. And uh, to your point about asking why and curiosity earlier, I think that's a really good sign. Uh, and I think I sent you like 15 questions or themes that we were going to hit on. And I think maybe we got to three or four of them, maybe five, which is also a good sign. So uh, Safi, if people obviously want to get loon shots, I think they can get the book anywhere. But if people want to follow what you're up to, um, where can they do that? And if you're active on social media or where else people can follow what you're up to or what you're thinking about, uh, or where maybe they'll be able to redrop ed, uh, whenever it comes out, uh, give people an idea of where they can find you. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn probably most often, but you know, I don't know how many people listen to this, but you can email me at, if you want, uh, I can send like a first chapter of the book or one of these articles that I wrote, um, if you email me at my first name, Safi, at my last name, Bacall.com, and I try to read most emails. I can't swear I'll get back on time, but I, I do my best. And otherwise, uh, you know, I have a website, loonshots.com. Uh, you can read a lot of stuff there. 
Perfect. You can listen to all these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. I sent that link over to Safi when he was prepping for this conversation. Uh, and then LinkedIn, I also like to play as well. Brian Levinson and Twitter for now, also at Brian Levinson. Uh, Safi mentioned that guy, Elon, who I think is fascinating and interesting. And maybe over a glass of wine, we will discuss him and more things that impact our world. Uh, but Safi, this has been a blast. Welcome to Washington, D.C. Uh, I'm glad our paths crossed and big shout out to David Epstein for making that happen and looking forward to getting to know you better as well. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. You know, what separates the real innovators is a couple other things, is how they go about it. Do they keep asking why? Do they listen to the suck with curiosity? That's another thing, LSC, that a lot of people can kind of come back to me about with revolution. When something doesn't work, do they just dismiss it? Or, or the person that's rejecting their idea or their proposal, do they tell them that they're morons and go you know, to their spouse or mom and say, I'm on the right track? Aren't I? Yes, you are, honey. No, they listen and they probe, why is it? that you're not really excited about my idea. What's not resonating here?